miles lower, our board up. <laughs> I guess I'm talking about Georgia in this hour. <laughs> that was cute, Miles, very cute. He's Miles Lowe. I'm Tavis Smiley. You are you, and we are delighted to have you with us on KBLA Talk 1580 in this hour. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. The smooth sounds of the iconic and legendary Ray Charles singing that song is only Ray Charles can sing it. In this hour, Bloomberg opinion columnist Francis Wilkinson joins us to unpack several trending topics, including today's highly anticipated and closely watched Senate runoff in Georgia, Warnock versus Walker, and whether or not campaigning on fear is starting to work against Republicans. A lot to get to in this hour as we talk politics with Francis Wilkinson of Bloomberg. Francis, how are you today, sir? Good, Tavis. Nice to be with you. Good to have you on, man. Thank you for your time. Let me just go straight to Georgia, man. Every uh, Everybody's watching and talking about this. Uh, let me just ask, broadly speaking, um, how you have seen this race in Georgia, and then I'll get more specific and we'll work our way through this hour. So you first, Francis, how have you seen this uh, <laughs> this interesting uh, Herculean political tete-a-tete uh, in the Peachtree State? Well, you know, I think part of what's interesting about it is that it, it's not an anomaly mm-hmm. in some sense. Uh, it's shaping up the way a lot of recent races uh, in purple states have shaped up. And the fact that there are two black contestants doesn't really seem to have uh, a huge impact on the demographics of the vote. You see, you know, basically white evangelical Christian base still coming out for the Republican and the typical Democratic base, younger voters, women, uh, black voters, uh, suburban, affluent, educated voters, uh, trending with the Democrats. So even though it's an unusual situation, um, it, it's it's shaping up to be a very typical Democratic candidate versus Republican candidate race. Mm-hmm. When you said a purple state, were, were you making were you making uh, an analogy, or were you referring to Georgia as a purple state? No, I'm referring to Georgia as a purple state, which it uh, it is now. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, it, it's. Uh, went for uh, Joe Biden in 2020, as we know. Uh, This race has been very close. The governor's race was not in November, uh, but there was a drop-off of about 200,000 votes from the Republican candidate, uh, Kemp, to Herschel Walker. So Walker left a lot of votes on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, I I asked that question because I I thought that's what you meant, Um, and I suspect there are many people listening who still see Georgia as a red state. Um, there might have been some successes here and there, as my big mama used to tell me, a broken clock is right twice a day. And because <laughs> and because you're right twice a day doesn't mean you go from red to purple. But you, you are, is that wishful thinking, or do you really see in your work in research and writing Georgia as a purple state? Well, if you look at how the state is going, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, by the way, we should, we should point out, while it has a Republican governor who was just reelected, uh, it also has a Democratic senator in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it does have a Republican legislature. It is, you know, largely a purplish with a red tint state. Mm-hmm. Now, 
the demographics are, though, that it's a state that is trending younger. It is a state where a lot of the growth is in the suburbs around Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the, the rural sections of Georgia, like rural sections in a lot of other states, are not really growing that much. Uh, and so we see a lot of the same dynamics that we see in other sort of um, growing states and states that are they're trending democratic mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know it, you, you see that yeah let me ask you while you're there um uh, on, on this point francis wilkinson let me ask whether or not beyond the state of georgia given the data that you just laid out that we are seeing every day play out in georgia which is making it more purple if not altogether purple it's becoming less red uh, I take your point in that regard. Beyond the state of Georgia, let me ask you whether or not you think that is the is the way of the future in the South writ large. I was in a conversation yesterday, uh, and you know this stuff well, Francis, in a conversation yesterday about LBJ, who famously said once he uh, pushed that, 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 that monumental legislation through voting rights and civil rights, he knew that he was giving up the South. He said, you know, very clearly. We're going to lose the South for another generation here. And it went longer than that, obviously. Uh, it's been it's been that way. Uh, he lost, The South has been lost essentially since LBJ. Uh, but I'm wondering, politically that is, but I'm wondering whether or not you think what we're seeing in Georgia is really the new wave uh, of the future, that when you have uh, demographics in other states like Georgia, younger people, these old diehards uh, start to die off, these old white diehards, to be frank about it, start to die off, whether or not you think that in the coming years we're going to see a changing politically of the South beyond even the state of Georgia? Uh, unfortunately, I would say no. Okay. Uh, if, if you look at Alabama and Mississippi, what you're seeing is basically the cleaving of the parties into racial parties. Mm. So in in Alabama and Mississippi, the Democratic Party is a black party and the Republican Party is a white party. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are not moving in the direction of Georgia because they don't have the same kind of economic dynamism that Georgia has. They're not attracting... Uh, you know, Georgia has attracted a huge number, as you know, a, a huge number of affluent blacks have moved into the Atlanta area in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. It's also attracting uh, a lot of Asian Americans. It's becoming a much more diverse state with a much more uh, dynamic economy around Atlanta. You don't see that in Alabama. You don't see that in Mississippi. Yeah. You may see, uh, you know, a, a car company moving into to build a non-union factory, but you're not seeing the kind of 21st century information economy types of jobs going there, and you're not seeing the kind of economic dynamism that that's influencing the politics to change as you see it in Georgia. No, no question about that. Atlanta is a huge economic magnet, and we owe. Uh, Maynard Jackson for that. Uh, I, I loved Maynard Jackson. I miss Maynard Jackson, the first African-American mayor of that city. Uh, but all this goes back to Maynard Jackson, um, this notion of making Atlanta uh, a magnet for uh, uh, well-to-do uh, African-Americans. We were just, we were just talking, uh, Francis, in our first hour today about black privilege. Uh, and there is no city that comes to mind uh, outside of New York where you see black privilege on display in the way you see it in Atlanta. So, again, we think... Uh, and recall the life and legacy of one Maynard Jackson uh, first uh, starting 
that trend, commencing that trend uh, in bringing us to the Atlanta that we know today. When we come forward with Francis Wilkinson of uh, Bloomberg, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, we're going to come back to this notion he, he, this he raised a moment ago. He said that the state is uh, where we're watching, of course, this race today between Warnock and Walker. Um, the outcome of this race is not really so much in an uh, 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 and uh, different than what uh, we see in other states. Um, uh, it's not really that much of an anomaly, is the word that Francis used. I was looking for that word. It just came back to me. Not much of an, uh, an anomaly. Um, it is an anomaly in this regard. Uh, there are two high-profile black men who are running against each other for a high-profile U.S. Senate seat. That doesn't happen every day. We'll get Francis' take on that. Uh, and um, what he expects uh, today, what he's looking at today. I've seen all kinds of articles this morning about what to watch, uh, what people are paying attention to. I want to know what Francis Wilkinson is paying attention to vis-a-vis uh, this long, long, long campaign in Georgia. And a great deal more to talk about politically as we move through this hour with Bloomberg opinion and columnist Francis Wilkinson on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Let's unpack a little bit more with Francis Wilkinson, Bloomberg opinion columnist, and I'm delighted to have Francis Wilkinson on with us in this hour. So, uh, Francis, you said a few moments ago that this race in Georgia is really shaping up not to be so much of an anomaly. Uh, what is uniquely different, as you well know, is that there are two black men going tete-a-tete head-to-head, mano-a-mano for this uh, all-important Senate seat. We know it's not going to determine, determine, that is, control of the Senate, uh, while Biden and other Democrats would love, of course, to have that 51st vote. We'll see how this all works out today. But um, as you stand um, where you stand and write about these kinds of uh, contestations and you see two high-profile black men duking it out for an all-important Senate seat, uh, you know, this is this is this is high cotton. Ain't, ain't but a hundred of these, right? Ain't but a hundred of them, uh, and you got two black men going at it in Georgia, no less. How have you seen this race through your own cultural lens? Well, obviously, the the racial component never leaves these races. Whether the you know whether you have a two white candidates, two black candidates, or any other combination, uh, races, as you know, is central component of our politics. What I see, though, is a a black Republican in Herschel Walker, who was very influenced by Trump to uh, to be backed in the race and and to win the primary in the Republican primary last spring, and it looks to me, even though he's a black candidate, it looks very similar to other situations in other states, where a Trump-backed, very flawed candidate. Uh, is given the Republican nomination and then cannot bring the election home, even though it should have been a good year for Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. It should have been a good year for Republican candidates. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Since you raised the name of Donald Trump, I said on this program yesterday, as you well know, Francis, uh, that both Biden and Trump have stayed out of Georgia as we've headed toward this day today. Um, the uh, the runoff in Georgia, both uh, were more involved prior to, but both stayed away uh, as we were heading up to this all important election day in the Peachtree State. How do you read that more expressly um, on the other side of tonight? Uh, if Herschel Walker cannot pull this out, what does that say about the fortunes, the future of one Donald Trump? All right. Well, let, let me try and address the first part first, mm-hmm. and that's you know. Uh, 
it was made very clear that Trump was not an asset in this race. And I think uh, that Republicans prevailed on him not to get openly involved. He'd already created enough trouble by helping Walker win in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that piece. Biden, you know, yes, Biden was, was not a big public figure in this, but you know that Barack Obama was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a very high-profile Democratic uh, figure who who was brought in repeatedly to to help the Democrats in this case. In, in terms of what what this says for Trumpism and Trump, uh, I think those are two separate things. For Trump, it, you know, it will be another another notch against him. Uh, does that mean he's down and out? I don't think it does. I don't see any evidence. That it means that the man just called for the Constitution to be terminated, essentially, and mm. got very little pushback from his party on that. So clearly, he still has uh, at least Republicans perceive him to have a lot of juice in their party. Uh, and then in terms of Trumpism, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to be out of the woods with Trumpism for a while. So. Uh, with or without Donald Trump, that is still the prevailing ethos in the Republican Party. Yep. Since you went there, let me follow you as I will throughout this hour. Um, uh, speaking of Donald Trump, um, my read of this, Francis, is the same as your read. Um, the the Sunday morning shows, notwithstanding, I, I was doing a sort of roundup yesterday of who said what on the Sunday morning shows. Uh, and I think you're right about this. By and large, while there are a few people who say, oh, of course, we can't support that. Uh, Lisa Murkowski comes to mind. I think John Thune comes to mind. But by and large, Trump did not get the kind of kick in the pants, the kind of resounding condemnation that you would have hoped or expected when he calls for upending the Constitution. I mean, Donald Trump's done a lot and said a lot of crazy things. But when you say what he said over the weekend, which is essentially calling for a suspension and upending, if you will, of our Constitution, one of our founding documents, the things that they seem to hold dear, they being the right. Uh, these are these you know, these are original uh, uh, original constructionists uh, uh, and these original thinkers vis-a-vis the Supreme Court and who they want to sit on the court and how they want in these uh, justices to uh, to interpret the laws that are, are, are on the books. This is the stuff they believe in, these founding documents. And so when Donald Trump calls for an upending of one of these founding documents, I expected that this might be the line where they're not willing to, you know, they're, 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 they, this, this, is, this is the moment. Uh, and uh, to, to my read, at least, that, that didn't quite happen. So I agree with you about that. But how do you read that? What do you make of that? Well, you know, it, it, it's not just a philosophical point, right? It's mm-hmm. a political one. Yeah. This was an opportunity for them to distance themselves from Trump, which they keep privately saying they want to do, but publicly they basically don't do it, and they have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Now, Trump has defined his goals very clearly. You, you can no longer accuse him of wanting to operate in a democratic constitutional system because mm-hmm. he clearly does not. He tried to overthrow the government on January 6th. He's now stated uh, publicly, explicitly, that he wants to subvert the Constitution. Uh, there really is not much more evidence you need that this man is operating in an authoritarian political mode and not in a democratic, small-D democratic mode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you are not renouncing that, 
then it's not just that you're you're allowing Donald Trump the person to continue on this this uh, you know wreckage tour that he's had for the last several years. It's that you are keeping the door open to an authoritarian mode of government, and that is the far more dangerous proposition. Mm. Um, I'm just uh, taking all this in uh, as you um, express your point of view with me, and it leads me to ask, Francis, the obvious question, at least in my mind, which is this. What then is it going to take, um, to, to use your phrase, if you're not going to if you're not going to renounce a guy who is calling for a subversion, <clears throat> wants to subvert, uh, again, one of our founding documents, the U.S. Constitution, then what is it going to take? Never mind what they say privately. What is it going to take? Um, I've said many times that people eventually, my my read of people, writ large, Francis, is that people eventually wake up, one, because they see the light, or two, because they feel the heat. So it leads me to ask, what 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 is it then going to take? If this isn't that moment where you just throw down the gauntlet, then what's it going to take? Well, if I can continue your uh, analogy, I, I, I don't think they're going to see the light. There's mm. been so much light, and they have yeah. really not wanted to see that light. So that leaves us with the heat, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It and, does. And uh, that's pretty much where we are, which is that the political cost of continuing down this road has to be high. There has to be a very high political cost because that is ultimately what they're interested in, right? This is a a political party. They want power. Mm -hmm. And if the cost of their continuing with Trumpism, which I define as as far more than Donald Trump, but this more authoritarian mode, um, if the cost of that is too high, then I think they will stop. But so far, the cost has not been sufficiently high for them to do that. Mm. So what are they afraid of? Are they afraid of him or are they afraid of them, them being the the Trumpist? Who are they afraid of? Yeah, I don't think they've ever been that afraid of him. In fact, they may never have been afraid of him at all. Mm -hmm. But they're afraid of, clearly, their own voters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what Trump did was give a large portion of the Republican Party something that it clearly wanted but hadn't been offered prior to that. Uh, And that was, you know, a a racial aggression that was very overt. It was an anti-immigrant xenophobia that was very overt. All of these kind of um, subterranean streams that ran through American conservatism for many years were suddenly elevated and became kind of a mighty rushing torrent. And that was Trump bringing those streams to the to the fore, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, he, there is a a large part of the Republican Party that has a, a very serious appetite for that, and that has been the dilemma of other Republicans who are uh, less extreme uh, ever since Trump appeared on the scene, which is how do we both keep these people in our coalition? and yet not let them overrun not only our party, but our democracy. Mm. And that is a, a trick that the Republican Party has not handled well. I saw the piece that you wrote recently, Francis, called uh, Can MAGA Republicans Learn to Love Democracy Again? Can MAGA Republicans Learn to Love Democracy Again? Put a pin in that. 
We'll come back to that in just a second. Let me ask you right quick, though, um, because you've opined on this as well, whether or not you think there is any evidence. Are you seeing anything that suggests to you that campaigning on fear is starting to work against Republicans? Well, you know, what I said is is that uh, Democrats campaigned on one kind of fear, right, mm-hmm. which is that Republicans, if given free reign, will overturn democracy. Uh, Republicans campaigned this, this year on another kind of fear, which is a, a more familiar one. Uh, you know, immigrants are going to overrun the border and terrorize you, and crime is out of control. These were all pretty familiar themes. Uh, what we saw was that the decisive swing vote in a lot of swing places like Arizona, um, you know, like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Pennsylvania, that argument from the Republicans did not work. But that the the argument that democracy was in peril did have enough influence with enough people, and some of them were Republicans, by the way, um, that Democrats were able to pull out victories in all of those states. Mm. Um, there's a great deal more to talk about in this hour, just getting started, really, uh, in this conversation with our Bloomberg opinion columnist, Francis Wilkinson, uh, who is our guest. Um, I want to, after news, traffic and sports, come back to this notion about democracy and whether or not these uh, MAGA, these Trumpists, these Republicans can ever learn to love democracy again. I also want to ask Francis, and I will in a moment here, um, what it says to his mind about the fragility of our democracy that Trump can play uh, authoritarian and not get the kind of pushback uh, that you'd expect that he ought to receive. What does that say about the future and the fragility, frankly, of the democracy that we live in? I also want to get Francis's take on this uh, red wave that people thought was going to happen uh, in this last election. We know now we're going to have divided government in Washington, but um, how should I read the fact that there was no red wave, um, that uh, Democrats are just all that and then some, uh, a, a bag of chips, uh, uh, or should I read it as Democrats just uh, being lucky uh, that there was no red wave? Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of chess beating. There has been a lot of chess beating. There still is about how great this election was for Democrats. Well, maybe Democrats just got lucky and they skirted uh, what could have been a shellacking for them. I want to know how Francis Wilkinson reads that. We'll continue with him when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We're not for everybody, but we're for everybody. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's Francis Wilkinson, Bloomberg Opinion and Columnist, and we're delighted to have you with us as we continue our conversation in this hour about all things politics. Uh, Of course, today, in case you've just tuned in, or for that matter, living under a rock, uh, today is the big uh, runoff in uh, in, uh, Georgia. Uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, for the last time, it seems like we've done this uh, a bunch of times already before the last time uh, voters in Georgia have to go to the polls uh, one more again, as we say, uh, and uh, make a statement about the future of our democracy. Uh, I, I wonder, Francis, whether or not if you were living in Georgia, you would have as a voter election fatigue right about now. Well, I think everyone in Georgia does. I mean, there's been, uh, I think, $400 million spent on that Senate right. race. Yeah. Uh it is just relentless advertising, uh, people knocking on doors. Uh, it's, it's really pretty intense to live under that. Uh, but, you know, by the same token, it doesn't last forever. It's important. 
and uh, you know, eventually you get a United States senator out of it. Yep. Uh, at four hundred million dollars, you'll get a senator. That's a whole lot of cheddar. Uh, to spend on one race. Uh, let me ask you about that since you went there. I sit in Los Angeles where this uh, radio station is flagshipped. Heard, of course, across the country, but based right here in L.A. in Lamert Park, historic Lamert Park, and in the city of L.A., as you well know. Uh, the election results were certified yesterday. Um, she's being sworn in this Sunday. Let me just mention right quick, uh, we have a big uh, big block party celebrating Karen Bass this Saturday. Let me pivot right quick. Uh, if you'd like to be a vendor for our Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event in Historic Lamert Park this Saturday, December the 10th, please email us right away. Just a few spaces left, and the deadline is tomorrow. So if you want to be a vendor at our big uh, block party celebrating Karen Bass this Saturday, uh, hit us right now. Email us at info at smileyaudiomedia.com. That's info at smileyaudiomedia.com. We'll get you all the details you need right away. Uh, by the way, the event is this Saturday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. right here in Lamert Park. Specifically, if you're in L.A., the intersection of Lamert and Vernon. Huge stage, right smack dab in the middle of the street. Karen Bass goes on stage with us live at 11 a.m., but the program starts at 10 a.m. The Crenshaw Marching Band will start us off marching in to get this program uh, underway, uh, and then we'll be joined in Hour 1 by Guapale with a live performance. Karen Bass hits the stage at 11 a.m. After that, Brian McKnight takes the stage, uh, and then after that, Club Nouveau will take the stage. It'll be a great day in Lamert Park this Saturday uh, as we celebrate the historic election of Karen Bass, the first woman to be mayor of the city of Los Angeles, only the second African-American following the guy that I had the honor of working for, Tom Bradley, as the first black mayor of this city. I raise all that, Francis, to get to you and say that in this race, as you well know, um, Karen Bass did something that has never, ever, ever, ever been done politically in the history of this country, and that is she withstood a $100 million-plus frontal assault uh, against uh, uh, from a billionaire named Rick Caruso, as you well know. And so there's all kind of conversation about what that means for money in our politics, that $100 million plus can be spent not on a governor's race, but on a mayor's race. And the guy who spent it still lost $400 million spent on this Senate race in Georgia. What say you in, uh, in this moment in late modernity about the money in our politics? Well, I think the money in our politics is a reflection of the polarization in our politics and the fact that it's a very evenly divided nation with very competitive races. And so the stakes are higher. People are willing to put more money into winning. And also you have the enlistment uh, via the Internet and all kinds of things like Act Blue. Uh, that bring wide numbers of people into donating to campaigns. Uh, I actually think that's not a bad thing at all. I think that's a good thing. Uh, it, it frees candidates from spending all their time dialing for dollars. It allows uh, more common people to have a stake in it and allows, you know, I mean, honestly, this, this trend really began with Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 when he was able to tap into enthusiasm among people who were not typical donors, but people who wanted to pitch in $50. Mm -hmm. And that really did uh, begin the change in, in the way a lot of campaigns are funded. Yeah, Bernie Sanders is a master of that, as you well know. I will say this about this Georgia race. Um, uh, Raphael Warnock is a friend. We've known each other for many, many years. And yet I am happy to say that after today, 
I hope to never get another email from Raphael Warnock asking me <laughs> asking me to chip in. I hate that. I'm I'm sick of the phrase chip in. Can you chip in five dollars? Can you chip in fifteen? Can you chip in twenty? So, somehow that phrase chip in must have been poll tested. And they use it all the time. But I'm sick and I'm so sick and tired of getting emails asking me to chip in five dollars. But, but Travis, <laughs> yeah. he wants to quadruple your match though. Yeah, I got it. I got. It. <laughs> <laughs> I take it, Francis. I take it. I'm just waiting. Waiting for this day to be over uh, so I can just stop getting those emails asking me to chip in a few dollars here and there. I'm sick of it. That said, let me circle back to this we were talking about a moment ago, and that is the issue of democracy. Again, I read your brilliant piece, uh, Can MAGA Republicans Learn to Love Democracy Again? Before I get to that, let me ask you, broadly speaking, I've asked this of others, but I've not asked it of Francis Wilkins, and I'm dying to hear your response to this. Um, what is your opinion um, of the state of our democracy? Well, it's pretty precarious. I think I think that's very clear. Uh, the question is whether this election this year has pointed us in the right direction permanently, or whether this is just another skirmish in a very very long battle. Mm. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think. You know, I don't have answers for that. uh, There is an analytical framework that I think is useful, which is that we have historical precedent for this. We have, you know, periods of our our history that are backlashes against progress, right? We Mm -hmm. had Reconstruction, and that was followed by Jim Crow and, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. We had in the 1920s uh, a backlash against immigrants, where the Ku Klux Klan rose and became even more prominent than it had been the first time, uh, and followed with a 1924 law that was highly restrictive of immigration. We had a backlash to the civil rights movement in the 60s, right? And if you look at this as a period of backlash to the kind of uh, prominence of multiracial democracy the assertion of new classes of people being empowered, then it fits into this longer pattern. The question is how it plays out, and I don't have an answer for that. I just have hopes for that. Yep, I I, I feel you on that. Um, But it still raises the question to your point about whether or not this is a uh, permanent new direction that we're headed in, or whether this was a uh, just a skirmish, talking now about the results of this uh, most recent midterm election, um, it still raises the question uh, as to how you process the fact that there was not this red wave that many expected. To my mind, I'm getting a little concerned about all the gloating that Democrats have been doing. How do you read it, though, Francis? Uh, I think that's probably a pretty good concern of yours. Uh, I think what we saw was an election where in in the most vital places, and that is Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, you, especially where you had people on the ballot for positions like governor and secretary of state, where they would have had an enormous amount of influence over the next election and how it was administered. In those places, you can see that democracy sort of triumphed in part because a lot of independent voters and even some moderate Republicans were concerned about what the MAGA Republican candidates would do if they were given that power. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the, the success of the Democratic Party in those 
races has sort of defined the way that commentators and the public have looked at this election. If you look outside those real battleground states, I think you see a more typical midterm election where Republicans did pretty well. Uh, in my home state of New York, they did very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 kind of a mixed bag. And I think you're probably correct to be a little wary about the triumphalism because mm-hmm. uh, those were select races with very, very high stakes. And I think the good news out of that is that when the stakes are very, very high, people did prioritize keeping democracy intact. To your point about your home state of New York, I've read a number of pieces, uh, Francis, of late, and you, you read the same stuff I am and probably a lot more of it, given what you do as a uh, opinion columnist for Bloomberg. A number of pieces I've read of late, though, suggest that there are any number of Democrats who believe that they are no longer in control of the House because of what happened in your home state of New York. You, t- you feel me on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we're going to have a House where the Republicans have a very small uh, minority, I mean, majority, rather, mm-hmm. and the uh, difference could have been anywhere. So New York certainly provided fodder for that uh, because we saw a number of, suite, uh, of seats switch. Exactly. But, you know, it, when the margin of victory is that narrow, you can pretty much choose where to focus your energy on, you know, which which was the cause of the, the election going the way it did, because yeah. um, it's going to be a very narrow majority. It will be. Uh, and uh, speaking of New York, um, New York may very well be the reason why Democrats with those uh, handful of seats that got switched in the state of New York may very well be the reason why Democrats uh, don't have a narrow majority in the House. Uh, But it is also the case um, that the new leader of the Democrats in the House is from New York, Hakeem Jeffries. First time ever in the history of this nation that a black man or woman, anybody black, uh, has led his or her party in either chamber of Congress. And that's a big deal. Uh, Congratulations to Hakeem Jeffries. We'll continue with Francis Wilkinson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. Forward. We're not ratings driven. We're engagement driven. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I can dig it, and we continue our engagement with Francis Wilkinson, Bloomberg opinion columnist. We were talking. I was talking about Hakeem Jeffries, Francis. Uh, comes out of your home state of uh, of New York. Uh, so Hakeem Jeffries will now lead the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, James Clyburn, who was just on this program, uh, all stepping down from their leadership positions, raises a couple questions. Let me put it to you and I'll get out of your way. One, um, how concerned are you about the future of the Democratic uh, leadership, Democratic Party in the House, given that all three of these leaders, all advancing, of course, in age, uh, all doing that dance with mortality, as we all have to do at some point, but all deciding to step aside at the same time. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm curious as to your your thoughts on the future of the leadership inside the House, number one. Uh, and uh, what do you make of the history-making nature of uh, Hakeem Jeffries being the first African-American following the first woman to be uh, the leader of the Democratic Party in the House? Well, I think... Uh that's an interesting two-step when you consider Hillary Clinton being the first woman following the first black Mm -hmm. uh, in the presidential nomination. Mm -hmm. So I think that is indicative of the Democratic Party. 
the Democratic Party is the political institution where the social and racial integration of the nation has been taking place for a while. And so it's, it's just a natural evolution of the party. It's a natural, you know, the, the, I, I think this is something that, that sometimes gets lost, which is that all of that social churning, you know, with, of new people gaining more power, black people gaining more power, women gaining more power, gays and lesbians and, and, and others gaining power, Asian Americans, most of that takes place in a political context within the Democratic Party. Um, that is a difficult chemistry to pull off, mm -hmm. but it's also very essential for the success of both the party and the nation. So it's a good thing to see that the party is able to pull off this kind of handoff of power without any, you know, battles over race or sex or other sorts of things. Uh, that it's a, a fairly easy thing for them to do, that everyone in the party acknowledges that, mm. that everyone gets placed at the table. I think that is an important development in the Democratic Party, and I think it, it bodes well for the party. Do you have concern or uh, consternation about the divided government that we're about to have to live through and under? Well, you know... It's it's uh, it's not about divided government to me. It's about the Republican Party is yet to really be able to show itself as a governing party. I mm -hmm. mean, it's a party that is now in the House, most likely going to spend its time uh, looking at Hunter Biden's laptop and this and that and trying to get a lot of attention on Twitter and social media and get on Fox News. And none of that will have a great impact on governing except to make it more difficult to do in any serious manner. Our remaining moments with Francis Wilkinson, Bloomberg, opinion and columnist, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Our remaining few moments with Francis Wilkinson, Bloomberg Opinion and Columns. Francis, uh, once we get past today, and thank God for Jesus, today is the last day of this of this campaign season. I'm, I'm over it, man. Uh, we will see who prevails in Georgia, Warnock or Walker, and whether or not Democrats can get that 51st vote in the Senate, which would make things easier for one, Joe Biden. And speaking of Joe Biden, once we get past today, all eyes turn to him. He said recently, as you well know, that while on vacation in Nantucket uh, with his family for Thanksgiving, they did not talk about his decision uh, or not to seek reelection again. He has said that he intends to run, but that a final decision won't come to next year. Uh, I like the parsing he's been doing. Um, but your thoughts, since I have you here, about what you think Joe Biden will or ought to do as Francis Wilkinson sees it. Boy, that's a, a a lot of responsibility for some columnist. <laughs> uh, you can handle it, Francis. You can handle it. He's he's been running for president for his entire life. Mm -hmm. He's finally gotten it. I think uh, we should expect that he probably wants to hold on to the job. He mm -hmm. worked very hard to get. Now that being said, uh, I'm sure there are scenarios where he might decide to step down but i couldn't begin to tell you what they are i think that is 
something that he will keep to himself and to his family. And uh, so I wouldn't really be making any projections about what he's going to do. uh, And I I wouldn't expect that. Do you think that said, though, he is the strongest candidate that Democrats can put forward in 2024? I don't know. I don't know if he was the strongest candidate they could have put forward in 2020, but Mm -hmm. he was the candidate who won the nomination and won the presidency. And that counts for an awful lot in our system. (laughs) So the presumption is that he did it once, he can do it again. Uh, The only reason we're having this discussion, of course, as you know, is because of his age. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I don't know how that will play out. Yep. Um, I'll tell you how it's going to play out. I can can tell you uh, affirmatively and and, and factually how it's going to play out. It's going to play out that you'll be writing about this whether you want to or not because (laughs) (laughs) it is whether you want to or not or whether you have a crystal ball or not it's going to be such a huge topic in a few days uh that you have no choice but to write about it and i look forward to reading what you will have to say about this when you finally put your pen to paper or your fingers on your computer uh on your keyboard uh uh, again there'll be no choice everybody who does what francis does as an opinion uh, columnist will be writing about this in the days and weeks ahead Trust me on that. His name is Francis Wilkinson. He is a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and I have been delighted to have had him on this program for the hour. Francis, good to have you on, my friend. Happy holidays to you, sir. Thank you so much, Tavis. It's a great honor to have you on. In our third and final hour today, speaking of the holidays, we'll be joined by grief expert Marissa Renee Lee. So many of us celebrate the holidays, but for others, for a variety of reasons, they have to navigate this thing called grief during this particular time of the year and even beyond, Marissa Renee Lee, grief expert after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.